0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We are continuing this summer our study, which we began, I think, last fall uh, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. You'll find it on page 1007, 26 through 31 tonight. Our passage tonight contains hard words to hear. Concerning the vengeance of God. Now, two weeks ago, uh, Jay, I was off the last two weeks on vacation. Jay preached two weeks ago in John in Hebrews ten verses eleven to eighteen. He preached an outstanding sermon on the forgiveness we have through the one offering of Christ. I commend that to you. Likewise, the other. Last week, he preached on Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, where the author. So just prior to this, the author exhorts believers to hold fast to Christ and to not forsake meeting together, so that we can encourage one another to hold on to Christ. And all the more as we see the day of his appearing, the Day of Judgment, drawing near, Jay mentioned that that passage is a preacher's dream passage. It divides very neatly and covers a wonderful subject. I thought to myself, why didn't I take three weeks out of the pulpit as I anticipated this passage? It's a warning about hell. And so you'll understand. Now, Charles Spurgeon tells about a church that was asked to accept as their minister a man who did not believe in hell. And they said to that man, as a candidate, they said to him, You have come to tell us that there is no hell. If your doctrine is true, we certainly do not need you. And if it's not true... We don't want you. So either way, we can do without you. To speak of God's judgment and of hell is not pleasant, but necessary because God's word speaks of it. And it's the next passage in our study of Hebrews. God's word is clear about these things. So let's read Mark study and take to heart these words. Let me invite you to hear them from Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 26. This is the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. and our Lord and our God, we bow before You in Your Word and we pray that You would speak to us, that You would be our teacher, that You would help us, that You would lift Jesus before our eyes. Show us His glory and His grace and show us ourselves and our need of Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Montgomery County Texas man was faced with a possible jury trial there was uh, no doubt of his crime assault on a public servant prosecutors offered him a plea deal in which if he pled guilty he would be released immediately to freedom having served already 19 months as he awaited trial his lawyer advised his client to take the plea deal, noting that he had prior offenses, which included charges for burglary and domestic assault, that could lead to a sentence of 25 years to life behind bars. He turned them down. He faced the judge and the jury. His crime was established. He was convicted and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Freedom today, or 40 years, a life sentence for a man perhaps who's 46 years old as he was, you might say he chose poorly. Against the advice of counsel, he chose to reject the offer of mercy. He chose judgment instead of mercy. And the author of Hebrews would not have us make such a foolish and dangerous choice. Let me walk you through this passage. First, let me outline it for you to see the argument he's making. In verses 26 through 27, he gives a warning of God's vengeance, if he would have us take that warning to heart. Then, at verses 28 and 29, he gives a sense of the justice of God's vengeance. He would actually have us affirm and agree with him. He says, don't you think, when he describes this vengeance, he would have us agree with the justice of God here. And then in verses 30 to 31, he speaks of the certainty of God's justice, God's vengeance. So the warning of it, the justice of it, and the certainty of it in the first place at verses 26 and 27 Notice where he begins with the warning. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now to understand this passage, you need to understand that he's not talking about here just any old sin. He's speaking of a particular sin The particular sin of deliberately and habitually, or that is continually, rejecting Christ as the Savior. Rejecting the death of Christ in his one sacrifice that offers forgiveness. In rejecting the Christ he's portrayed for the last few chapters as the great high priest who gives access to God. And you remember that his earliest audience, they were tempted to turn back away from Christ to old things, to the way of Judaism, or for other reasons to turn away. And so he's not here describing just any old sin in general. He's not here talking about Christians who struggle with the flesh. The author knows, listen, that the moment of being forgiven and being set apart for God... And the moment of our death when our souls are made perfect in heaven. That between those moments there is a lifetime of sanctification. A lifetime of of a process of learning to die to sin and live for righteousness. Of learning to hate wickedness. And love goodness and of learning to live that out. And true believers know something of that struggle in their heart of hearts. And, and sometimes true believers backslide into old patterns of sin they thought they had long been free of. He's not talking here about that. And now to be clear, those are serious things. And would God's children choose to sin? It offends him. It grieves his spirit. It hinders our witness about Jesus to others. It, it runs contrary to who we are, who we've been made as new creatures in Christ. Sin is contrary to what God has designed for us and redeemed us to, to be sure. And it can make us liable to God's fatherly discipline. Any loving father disciplines his children continuing sin though is a reality as well as being wrong in every believer in this life not till heaven will you be made perfect forever now I do want to say that if if that's your situation I I want you to know that I and the elders of this church want to help you your your struggle is safe with us if you want to talk about it If if you're dealing with habitual sin that you just don't think there's any help for it. i want you to know there's great help in the gospel and we need to learn the help that the gospel has for us to to help us die to sin and at the same time there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus we're simultaneously sinners and justified pardoned and bound for heaven The sin in view here, however, is different. It is the kind of sin which leaves us in the position of having no sacrifice for sin. Now, how does it come to that? By the continued rejection of the only sacrifice for sins that there is. If, verses 26 and 27, if having received the knowledge of the truth, that is, christ the great high priest offered a perfect sacrifice for sins and by that single offering he offers complete pardon and forgiveness to all who believe in him and access to god through him if having received the knowledge of this we go on deliberately rejecting him There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because there is no other way of access to God and forgiveness. And you remember that these early Hebrew readers were tempted to turn their back on Christ and go back to what they knew of the animal sacrifices that took place in the temple under the old covenant. But those were just intended to be for a time, to be a tutor, to take them by the hand, to lead them to Christ. And once Christ has come... Those things have outserved their usefulness. They're worthless, the writer had said. They're weak. Abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism would be like a person trading in his house for the blueprint from which it came. Or like a person giving up their car for a photograph of the car. Or turning down chocolate cake for a brown crayon drawing of a chocolate cake. I mean, it would be foolish and spiritually here it would be disastrous now that's not the only temptation and i doubt there are any of us perhaps in this room who've ever been tempted to go back to animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins in the way that the jews of old practiced but but we are all through persecution and pressure and family and social relationships and and frankly, for uh, people who live in a culture that thinks it is idiotic to trust in a man who died and we say rose from the dead. And we do trust in him. You're thought to be a fool. You're thought foolish. We are tempted to turn away from Jesus to what the world thinks is wise, what others think is a better way of salvation but which in fact is no way of salvation at all for to reject christ's sacrifice is to be left with no sacrifice at all and you may know people who have done this or appear to have done it lord willing if they're still alive there's hope for people who have heard the gospel from their youth have been baptized and brought into the public community maybe professed their faith publicly partaken of the lord's supper said they believe in jesus and then for whatever reason have turned their back denounced him or just wandered away and said i don't want anything to do with jesus christianity or the church and they're gone if they persist if they go on It may indeed indicate that they were never true believers, and it may indicate that they're in the condition here. We should call them back because there is no hope outside of Jesus, is what the author is saying. What awaits them, rather, verse 27, is what? He says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you reject Jesus, you have nowhere else to go. There is no other Savior. And this is a warning to us all. And I don't say this with pleasure, and God doesn't speak of these things with pleasure. In fact, Ezekiel 33 verse 7 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back! Turn back from your evil ways! For why will you die, O house of Israel? The Scripture says. So whenever we encounter a warning like this, true faith trembles at the warnings. But if you're hard-hearted, if you're walking away from Jesus, take this warning to heart and understand it comes to you. It comes to you in grace. One day the warning will end. But today... The warning is before you. In a British cemetery, it's I'm told the sign reads, "Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me." A wise visitor added To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. There are two ways, the Bible says. There is the way of salvation and there is the way of damnation. And there is no other way. Be warned, he says. And he presses his argument further. He would have you agree with him about the justice of this. And so he would have you think through why this is just. What has this person who does this, what have they done? Why is it just? Well, notice the language here of the justice of God's vengeance in verses 28 and 29. And... uh, As he wants them to mull it over, he brings really before them two things. First, in verse 28, he appeals to them something they were very familiar with, the old covenant under Moses, God's prior dealings, and he reminds them of that. They knew that law, verse 28. And then he appeals to their own sense of the appropriateness at verse 29. So those two in the first place, the law, verse 28. He reminds them of what the law said. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who? And he goes on. What's he talking about? He's, he has in mind Deuteronomy chapter 17 where a man or a woman is caught by the community in idolatry. They're living as an Israelite among Israel. They've gone out and embraced the gods of their neighbors or even the god the sun or the moon and begun to worship and bow down to other deities. And so they've become idolaters in a very public and scandalous way. And what was deserved for that sin? The death penalty was deserved for that sin in Deuteronomy chapter 17. It was a crime of rejecting the Lord. The same crime here should we reject Jesus, the Lord. And what should happen to them in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so what the author is saying is, remember how clear the law is about this? Now, don't imagine, he says, that under the gospel, even with the coming of Jesus, that God's justice is any less strict, which is probably how we tend to think of God's justice. But in fact, he says under the gospel, his justice is strict And the punishments are worse, more severe. We have greater privileges, so we have greater responsibilities, and so there are greater punishments for apostasy. Do you see that language? Covenant loyalty, he's saying. Covenant faithfulness is expected of those who are united to the new covenant community are found under the promises of the gospel, have those promises offered to them and signed and sealed to them. And if you repudiate it, the covenant curses come into play. Which uh, here demonstrates as well that, that in the New Testament, under the new covenant, it's not different than under the Old Covenant in the sense that some want to say that, you know, in the times of the Old Covenant, there was much talk of wrath and curse, but under the New Covenant, there's, it's all about love and mercy. But in fact, across the entire Bible, God is the God of justice, holiness, judgment, and grace, love and mercy. And now in our day, if we turn away, we're liable. He says, do we not deserve a greater punishment? So don't imagine then that God is being unjust or will be unjust with anyone. Don't think in your heart of hearts that it isn't right for God to judge his enemies as they're described here, the adversaries when they scorn his offer of friendship the author is piling up then reasons and this is in verse 29 reasons god's fury he calls a fury of fire is so strong his zeal against them is so strong think what they've done verse 29 trampling profaning insulting three things notice verse 29 how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of god some of you are old enough to remember in 2008 when george w bush the second president bush held a press conference with the iraqi president and a journalist threw both his shoes at our president and there's a video of him ducking and dodging and I think he was missed with the shoes now why did that journalist throw his shoes was he trying to seriously harm the president but somehow didn't want to throw what would have been more dangerous objects perhaps his camera or even his pens no no he was seeking to insult the president because in the Arab world, the shoe is considered unclean. It touches the dirt and the filth of the world. In Arab homes, they take their shoes off before they enter, as they do in many places, not in the Wanger home. It's why you, you're welcome to come and wear your shoes. It, but it is why in many homes uh, the shoes are taken off. It's also why it's considered an insult to even show the, another person the bottom of your Foot or your shoe, and why you ought to be careful uh, if you're in a culture like that when crossing the leg not to turn up the foot and show it can be understood to be an insult. An insult to George W. Bush's father, George Bush, after the first Gulf War, was a mosaic of his face that was tiled onto the floor of the Al Rashid Hotel. In Baghdad, so that anyone who entered the lobby would have to walk over his face to get into the hotel. It was intended as a great insult to George Bush. The mosaic, I'm given to understand, was subsequently destroyed by American soldiers in 2003 and replaced by, as you might guess, an image of Saddam Hussein. Imagine. The insult. Imagine how you would feel if I pulled out a Polaroid camera that, that makes a picture immediately. And I took your photo, waited for it to develop. We checked it, looked at it, saw if it was nicer. Or not. And I crumbled it up and I threw it on the ground and I stomped on it. <laughs> That's weird, you would say. That's strange. But also, you would be a little bit offended for my trampling on a mere picture of you. Imagine... But this, of course, is much worse. God loved the world in this way. That he sent his only unique beloved son, whom the author here in chapter 1 has described as the image of the invisible God, the heir of all things, the the one who is the radiance of the glory of God... and the exact representation of his being... the one who is God in the flesh... the eternal and everlasting son of God... God sent him into the world... that whoever believes in him... should not perish... but have everlasting life... and how is the person here described treating this son? They are tearing him down... throwing him beneath their feet... They would have him be nailed upon the cross all over again and his body brought off that tree so they could walk and stomp on him. That's what they're saying this man is worth in his person. How should they then be treated? His second point is this what of his death on the cross for sinners? Not just his person, but his work. What is it they do? They not only trample the Son of God, but they profane, verse 29, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now what's this talking about? Well, Again, think of the shed blood of Christ when he offered himself upon the tree out of love for his people expressed in laying down his life for the church. And they say of this, that's just a common thing. That's just an unholy thing. There's nothing particularly special about it. It's no big deal, they say. It's not worthy of reverence or adoration or gratitude. His death is just the death of a common man, a common criminal even. You know, in fact, Pilate was right to condemn him. The crowd was right to cry, crucify him. That's the stand they're taking, he says, towards this one whose blood was shed because of the covenant. Now, the last part of that phrase is a bit more difficult. The blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified. If the one sanctified there is the one profaning the blood, then by one reading, as some do, it seems to suggest a person who was saved but now loses salvation. They were saved as in sanctified saved and then they've somehow lost that we dealt with this at much greater length in hebrews chapter 6 saints don't lose not true saints don't lose their salvation but many perhaps who profess faith can lose salvation surely if they don't come to true and genuine salvation a different reading here would be That they have been set apart from the world, set apart for God into identification with the people of God. Under baptism into identification with Jesus. At the table into identification as they participate with the people of God. They say that the gospel is for them. They say they belong to the church. They eat and they drink. And yet one day they repudiate And so on that reading, it's a warning for those who are in the church, even those raised up from the earliest age in the church, not to fall away. Perhaps the even better reading of the passage is to see that the one sanctified here is not the one who professed faith, but Jesus himself. It's a minority position, but others hold it. That what he's speaking here is of Jesus who set himself apart, was sanctified, sanctified even himself for God's holy purpose unto death. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed, for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. He set himself apart to go to the cross on our behalf to satisfy the demands of a broken covenant by offering himself his blood to bear covenant judgment covenant curse so that we might receive covenant blessing and that's the other way to look at that but here what they've done they've trampled the son of God they've treated as profane his blood the blood of the covenant. And thirdly, notice notice what else they do. He says, they outrage the spirit of grace. End of verse 29. He speaks here of insulting the Holy Spirit. Now that just, by the way, reminds you that the Holy Spirit is a person. You don't outrage inanimate objects or impersonal forces, but you outrage and insult persons, living people or in this case the person of the son of god he is he says the spirit of grace when jesus ascended into heaven what did he do what is he doing as our great high priest he is interceding on our behalf and he is mediating between god and us and he is sending out his spirit into our hearts to take that which belongs to him and to make it ours John chapter 15 verse 26 Jesus said but when the helper comes the Holy Spirit whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me John 16 verse 14 he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you And so what he's saying is the Spirit has come as the evangelist of God to bring the good news of the Gospel to you about a Savior who offers Himself for you. And if you scorn, insult, turn your back on that Spirit who offers you grace in Jesus, what do you deserve? picture a man lying in the gutter in rags covered with sores hungry and homeless he's there because of his own sinful choices and a kind and generous man offers to take this man to the hospital pay all of his bills then to bequeath him his own inheritance to meet all of his needs in this life so that he might have a comfortable home, all the food he could eat, every comfort he could dream of, but the ungrateful man in the gutter spits in the man's face, curses at him, and then tells others that the man's offer was worthless. That would be worse than the insult described here. To the spirit of God who holds out his hands and says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so God offers to us his friendship. But the fury of fire will consume his enemies who refuse his friendship. Take that warning to heart. Affirm that it is deserved. And know that it is certain. Verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. He refers here to Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 35 and 36. Again bringing up passages they know. That there is no escape from God. You can try to run from him and for a time but you can't outrun him you can try to hide yourself but he knows where you are he knows who you are he knows what you've done and it's true in this life kids get away with all kinds of crazy stuff that their parents never pick up on and they never get punished for don't think God the Father is unaware like frail finite parents you aren't fooling him. Criminals get away with stuff all the time. Occasionally, people come flying down Villaview past our house, seeking to escape the trailing police cars. I think in hopes that they can get lost on the dirt roads of Oklahoma. I don't know how many of them are successful at it. It's a spectacle to be sure. Some, somewhere undoubtedly, flee and go free. Others get caught. But when they get caught, through the incompetence of a prosecutor, through the weakness or sleepiness or whims of a jury of their peers, or through the persuasive doubts inculcated in the heart by the defense attorney about the evidence that condemns they are acquitted when in fact they are guilty but with God there is no incompetence with God there is no weariness or sleepiness or whimsicalness no lack of attention to detail To turn away from Jesus is to fall into the hands of the living God, he says. If you abandon God as your Savior, you fall into the hands of God as your judge. What then should we do? Fear. Fear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he says. That day of reckoning is described in one place in Revelation chapter 6 like this, beginning at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Listen, if you think this judgment is too harsh, it's perhaps because of the weakness of your own sense of righteousness. But I can offer you this, Jesus the Son of God, tasting judgment on the cross, satisfying divine judgment in our place for our sins offered to all who will simply embrace Him by faith. Find salvation in Him, friends, or be judged by Him. Let's pray. Father, we bow before You. We bless you for the gift of your Son, which none deserve, which we had no expectation of having. And yet you are large in your generosity and gracious and kind and abundant in goodness and love and mercy. And all day long you hold out your hands to us and we bless you. And we give you thanks for this great kind Savior. Grant that each would know the blessing of his salvation. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and worship the Lord.